Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast dedicated to radical self-love, worth, and growth hosted by me, Francis K. Jane. In this podcast, I'll share lessons and perspective that have moved and shaped me as I embark on my 20-somethings and attempt to answer that million-dollar question, who am I? Sound familiar? Well, here's to the lessons I wish I could have learned sooner and to the person I'm going to become. Let's jump right in. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode two of For What It's Worth, a podcast hosted by me, Francis K. James. Today, I have a very special guest with me, someone who makes me feel like I can do anything that I set my mind to, one of the most incredible women I know, who happens to be my grandma, Francis. Before I grace y'all with her presence and dive right into today's episode, I just wanted to take a second to say thank you so much for all of the birthday wishes I received this past week. I felt so loved and so special that I quite frankly didn't know what to do with myself. Some of you might relate to this, but I don't always feel worthy of the love that I'm given, whether it's because I don't feel like I'm good enough or that I don't deserve it, or if it's because the love feels rather conditional. Regardless, this year, my friends and family showered me with love, attention, and their presence, and I feel like the luckiest girl in the world. This was one of the best birthdays I've ever had, and I really hope to keep this momentum going. But as I soak in this gratitude, I've been thinking a lot about the places and especially the people that I feel the most love and support from. One of those people is my incredible grandma, Frances. This week, my brother and I flew out to Riverdale, Georgia to spend some quality time with grandma, and I'd be doing myself and everyone else a disservice if I didn't share the wisdom, her backstory, the guidance, and the lessons learned that she continues to share with me. So without further ado, Here's the woman that I am blessed to be named after, Miss Frances C. James. Hi, Grandma. First, I want to say thank you for joining me on the second episode of For What It's Worth. I am so grateful to be on your podcast. <laughs> well, I guarantee it means more to me than it does to you. But, Grandma, you know how much I love you, and you know how much I love our weekly calls and FaceTimes. Yes, those where you never think you're beautiful for some reason, but I actually have no idea what you're talking about. But I'm happy, most importantly, that I get a chance to finally document your story and to share it with the world or the internet world, as you might say. So before we jump on in, can you just go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Frances C. James. I was born in November of 1939 in Tampa, Florida, to Iona Ransby and William Jacobs. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about your early childhood? You say you grew up in the backyard. What does that really mean? My childhood was terrible. I grew up in the backyard. The servants' quarters was in the backyard. My mother's name was Iona. She had worked for a family of Caucasian people since she was 22 years old. She left Georgia in 1922, and she worked for them for the next 50 years. My father stabbed my mother when I was two years old, and the two of them separated. And her employer said, Iona, you don't have to stay with that man. He's a drunk. He's always fighting you and beating you up. You can come live in the servants' quarters with us and bring Frances. She's two. And whatever you're doing in the house, whether you're cooking or cleaning or washing or ironing, Francis can be right with you. So that's how I began my life, I guess you'd put it that way. Every time you tell me that, Grandma, I get chills up my spine. So 
you and great-grandma Iona moved into the Richardson's backyard into your singular bedroom home where she worked for a wealthy white family in the white side of town in the Jim Crow South. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? The white kids didn't accept me because I was a little black kid in the neighborhood. They made fun of me. And when I was old enough to go to school, I couldn't go to the white school, which was within walking distance. I had to catch two buses to go to the black school. And the black kids made fun of me. They said, your daddy's white. That's why you live with the white people. You eat scraps. You wear their hand-me-downs. Yes, I did wear hand-me-downs, but I didn't think about it. I think I was about 30 years old when I realized the hand-me-downs that I wore, the people in the neighborhood where I grew up were lawyers and doctors. Their girls would get a dress from the best store in town and wear it one time, and they'd give it to my mother for me. And in my mind, that was a hand-me-down, and it really was a hand-me-down. But I didn't think about the fact that it had come from one of the best stores in town. And I realized that they were jealous. But to me, a hand-me-down was a hand-me-down. And then they said, oh, you eat their scraps. Well, I never had a pig foot or a neck bone. That's not the kind of food that my mother cooked for the people that she worked for. But I didn't, I just didn't understand any of that. I was just an unhappy child. Black kids were not welcome in the neighborhood. And so I didn't have, I didn't have visitors. And the white girls across the street were lawyers' children, Betty and Nancy. One was my age, another was a year younger than me. Miss Buckaloo, that was their mother. She would call my mother, Iona, send Francis over to play with the girls. And I was glad to go, somebody to play with. But one day a little girl came. She wasn't one of the regular kids that would come to play with Nancy and Betty. And she started to cry. And she turned red as a beet. Miss Buckaloo said, honey, why are you crying? I can't play with niggers. And Miss Buckaloo said, Francis, it's time for you to run along home. I was nine then. And then I realized why I always had to go home when the white kids came. So after that, when she'd send for me to come, I wouldn't go. So that was from nine until I got married. I got married at age 16. I got married to get out of the backyard because it wasn't a pleasant place to be. I never belonged anywhere. I didn't fit. I didn't belong in the white neighborhood. I didn't belong in the black neighborhood because they made fun of me. Honestly, I can't even fathom the things that you had to endure and persevere through during that time. When I think about your situation, you grew up with little to nothing in the backyard of a family that had everything and didn't want for anything. Fast forward, you married Grandpa Willie, you had three kids, sent them to private school, raised them and gave them a great life in Compton, California, with, you know, little means compared to the family that you grew up watching. Were you all happy? And does money buy happiness? Money does not buy happiness. Money is the root of all evil. It does not buy happiness. You can have all the money in the world. These people had money. Their children... They weren't happy. The parents, they had a liquor store. He was a pharmacist. He was a drunk. He would bring liquor home, the little, those little bottles that you get on the plane. His wife, Ms. Richards, would have me and my mother, when he'd come home, go check all the cushions on the mattress and then the chairs because he'd bring these little bottles and we'd have to find them and give them to her and she'd throw them out. He was a drunk. He was a pharmacist, but he was a drunk. Their children, I have three children. My two boys got law degrees. My daughter teaches school. She has credentials to be special ed teacher. Their children didn't, didn't turn out as well as my children did. And they had everything that, that they could ask for. They didn't want for anything. 
just think about some people that you know that have money. Are they really happy? Because they can buy a fine car or wear expensive clothes, but how happy are they? Money doesn't make you happy. I don't care what anybody says, it doesn't. And if you just look at society and think about some of the people that you've read about, movie stars, black and white, they're not happy. How many of them stay even stay married very long? So money doesn't make you happy. It feels good when you can spend it, but it, it's not what happiness is about. What is happiness about to you then? Happiness is about having a peace, a peace of mind, a peace that you can do what you want to do. It doesn't have to be money-wise. I'm happy. I don't have a lot of money where I am right now. I'm, I live on a very fixed income. I've got multiple sclerosis. I've got scoliosis. I've got high blood pressure. I've just got lots of things wrong with me. I said, but I'm happier than I've ever been. I live on a lake. I've got a dog. I've got hummingbirds. I've got birds. <laughs> so I'm happy. And if I could just walk without this walker, Lord knows I'd be like and feel like I was in glory. But I'm still happy. I'm happier than I've ever been. Aw, Grandma, nothing brings me more joy than hearing that you're the happiest you've ever been because honestly, you deserve it. As I embark on my own self-love and self-worth journey, as well as pursuing happiness because I want to be happy, I often think about how when I was younger, and even, I mean, hell, recently, I always rushed. Nothing was ever good enough. I wanted to rush to graduate high school. I wanted to rush to go to college. Then I wanted to rush to graduate college and start my adult life and, you know, get married and have a family and all these things. And now that it's all over and I'm here in that moment, I'm like, wow, I wish I would have slowed down a little bit and enjoyed it more. So grandma, what's your take? Do you feel like you rushed? And do you feel like people my age should be rushing towards the next thing? Or should we slow down a little bit? That's a, that's an interesting question. I didn't rush to get married. I rushed to get out of the backyard. And had I known what was on the other side of that backyard, I would have stayed in the backyard for another year. I just wanted to have a life. I didn't have a life. I got married when I was 16. Didn't have to. I had a scholarship from the 11th grade to Talladega College. Now remember, I was born in 1939. And my mother showed the letter to her employers. They were pharmacists. They had a drugstore and a liquor store. And they said to my mother, Iona, don't send Frances to that little black school. She's an honor student. She'll get a scholarship to a university, so don't, don't let her go to... My mother wouldn't let me go. She wouldn't sign the paperwork so that I could have gone to Talladega College. Had I been able to stay and go to college, I wouldn't have gotten married. Hmm. I tell young people, it's a, it's a four-letter word. When you're 14, 15, 16, you think you're in love. It feels good. I'm in love. It's a four-letter word. It starts with an L, all right. But it's not love. It's lust. L-U-S-T. And believe me, lust feels good when you're young. Get hugged and kissed and all that. I said, but it doesn't last forever. It wears off. And then you'll realize that it wasn't love. It, it wasn't. It was lust. Do you have any advice for those of us in relationships or looking for a partner? fact is, I tell people now, you're dating a person, have something in common with that person. You have to have something in common. You have to like some of the things, same things. Don't just get married because it feels good. People get married for the wrong reasons. And when you stop and think about it, how many of them are still that got married, let's say, 10 years ago? How many of them are still married? And if they are, are they happy? Or did they get married because it felt good? It was that 
lust thing. Young people should not rush. No, I didn't rush. Just wanted to get out the backyard. I often think about how hindsight is really 2020. And if we were able to go back in time and live our lives again, knowing what we know now, how many decisions might be changed. With that said, Grandma, you have so much wisdom from a life full of great decisions and, you know, potential regrets. But one thing I will say is that you've always drilled on me the importance of education. And I think that's because of a lot of lived experiences that you have. What other advice do you have for those high schoolers and college kids like Jesse as a lifelong learner who's had a very non-traditional educational background? To stay in school, get a good education so that if you do get married, that you can support a wife or children. Don't just follow the crowd because they're out doing things that, that young men like to do. <laughs> Stay in school. You can you can get an education without going. I mean, let's say you can't afford to go to the university, but you can still get an education. You can go to the library. You can read. You can learn. My husband had a saying, education is the key. And it is. If you get an education and are serious about the education that you've gotten, you can do anything you set your mind to. You really can. I think you bring up an excellent point. I think we as a society tend to stereotype and judge people based off of where they went to school and the degrees that they have or that they don't have. You're completely right in saying that there are many ways to be educated and that we all should strive to be lifelong learners. I want to ask you a question about your ability to persevere. You have lived through things that people like myself couldn't even begin to comprehend, and yet you still fought hard to get out of that backyard to make a good life for your husband and your three children. And I want to know why. A lot of people would have chosen to just give up. What encouraged you to keep fighting during life's toughest moments? I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to have something. And I I didn't want to have to depend on somebody to give it to me. I wanted to be able to earn it. I wanted to be in charge of me, and I wasn't in charge of me for a long time, but once I became in charge of me, my whole life, my my outlook changed. Although I can't drive, I can't really go anywhere unless somebody goes with me because I walk with a walker, but I feel free. There's an old gospel. It's, he didn't bring me this far to leave me, and he's brought me a mighty long way when I think about where I came from and how I grew up and the marriage that I went through, I'm still standing. You sure are. Life is real. It really is. You don't have to follow the crowd. I've never been a follower. I was determined that my three children were going to have everything that I didn't have. And I didn't have a home. We didn't own the bed we slept in when I was growing up. My father wasn't in my life. We didn't have anything. My mother got $5 a week. And then I remember when she got $10 a week. And when I left home at 16, they started paying her $20 a week and gave her a TV for her room. She continued to work for that family. She worked for them until she was 72. She'd been with them for 50 years. Wow. So she was with them for 50 years. You wanted to be somebody and you wanted to be in charge of me. And I think it's really interesting that you brought that up because anyone who knows me or has listened so far should know that I want to change the world someday. And they've also probably heard me say that I'm going to be somebody, but I know that I have the ability to be somebody because of the sacrifices that you and great grandma Iona made for our family to ensure that we really could be somebody, regardless of what anyone else says about us. Among the thousand other things about you that take my breath away, one thing 
in particular that you can do that is astounding is your ability to recite dozens of poems from memory that you learned throughout your life, but especially as a little girl. As a special treat for me and my listeners, do you think you could recite two of my favorite poems? The first one is one that you tell me often to remind me of our history as Black people. The title is That Jim Crow Law. Jim Crow is nothing else but segregation. They called it Jim Crow back years and years ago. Now, I've stayed silent long enough. I've tried to hold my jaw, but I'm going to say a word or so about that Jim Crow law. Now, they may say that color strikes a line, say just what they might, but I'm going to tell you right here, bud, that Jim Crow law ain't right. God made us all from white to black. He made all in one mold, and then he breathed in all alike the breath that gave the soul. He gave us just one kind of day, just one kind of night. Now that should prove to all that Jim Crow law ain't right. We milk their cows. We strain their milk. We make their cakes and pies. Our hands mix up the bread they eat. This is no surprise. We take their babies in our arms. We hug. We kiss. We bite. And then must face a Jim Crow law? Stand us down. That's right. When any big thing comes to town, they put us in the back. And on the train, we ride ahead to catch what's on the track. They mix us up with baggage, too. Most everything in sight. Then make us pay a first-class fare, pretending that is right. Now, why don't they put signs out in the fields, saying colored, stay back there? No, you can take the plow and hoe and spread out anywhere. And then they put on bargain sales to take your little mite and help to pass the Jim Crow law. Stand you down, that's right. Let each race stay on its own side. Die there. Yes, you can. And let them understand we mean to prove ourselves a man so we can vote and judge the law. Lay envy down and spite. Say, come along, the world can see. That Jim Crow law ain't right. So missionaries, push ahead. No Jim Crow's in your way. The one who rules and governs all has fixed a settling day. The ammunition is in your heart. Get on your knees and fight till Gabriel Trump says come to test. That Jim Crow law ain't right. Grandma, you know I love that one. Really quickly, speaking of that Jim Crow law, what is one word that you would use to describe what living under that Jim Crow law was like for you? It was terrible. You had to sit in the back of the bus. It was just terrible. And it was extra terrible for me because of where I lived. The white kids made fun of me. They called me nigger. They threw rocks at me. But at the same time, I'd go across town to the black school. The black kids made fun of me. Thank you for sharing that with us, Grandma. Moving on to our last thing, your second poem, and one of your favorite poems that I believe I memorized with my brother when I was about 16. Can you recite for us Invictus? Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Under the foul clutch of circumstance, I have not winched nor cried aloud. Under the bulgings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Thank you, Grandma. Um, I'm just so amazed by you 
And it is a privilege to be named after you, but more importantly, to get to sit here and to just chat with you about your life. I wish we had more time, but unfortunately, we are coming to an end of this episode. Thank you for supporting absolutely everything that I do, even when you're not completely sure about it. I know that you're one of my biggest fans and that I can tell you absolutely anything. And the fact that you support me, even on this wild adventure, means the world to me. You are my leading lady, and I hope you know that I tell everybody about you. I hope to be half of the woman that you are someday. I really am so proud of you. I am. And when you were in Utah and you were on TV, I mean, you should have just seen me. I wanted to tell everybody about my granddaughter, Frances. And you, you've done so many things. I mean, look what you've done with, with your sorority. I've seen all the things that you've done. How many young people are in sororities that have put as much into it as you have? I'm proud of you just because of who you are. And you're getting ready to have this wonderful job. You just, hmm. And I still think one day you're going to be attorney Francis K. James. But you've got to, this is something you've got to want. And you can do it. You can do it. I have no doubt that you can do it. I love you so much, Grandma. Well, I love you too. I sure hope so. You have the personality. But no, you, you can. You can be anything you want to be. Don't change. <sighs> Grandma, you're going to make me cry. You know how much I love you. I love my sweet, wonderful granddaughter. Everybody should have one like Francis. I will treasure this episode forever. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening to episode two, From One Francis to Another. I, Francis K. James, would not be me without you, Miss Francis C. James. Thank you for listening to For What It's Worth podcast with Francis K and Francis C both James the young James K the old James C thank you thank you so much for listening to for what it's worth a podcast hosted by me Francis K James make sure to subscribe and leave a review if you related to something I said today it only takes about 10 seconds don't forget to follow the podcast on Instagram at for what it's worth pod for updates and check back every week for a new episode. If you're interested, feel free to follow me on Instagram at Francis K. James to see my journey up close and personal. But most importantly, remember to love yourself and to do something that brings you joy this week. Till next time. <laughs>